welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today, I'm talking with Bob Godfrey, president of Westminster Seminary, California, and professor of church history, and with David Vendrunen, Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics. We're talking today about the upcoming faculty conference, Christ, Kingdom, and Culture, to be held next month, January 15th and 16th, on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about the conference, go to wscal.edu and click on the conference banner or call us at 760-480-8474. We're expecting a full house, so let me encourage you to register right away so that you don't miss out. Hi, Bob. Hi, Dave. Welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you, Scott. Good to be here. Why are we having this particular conference this year? Why why the conference uh, uh, on the Christ, Kingdom, and Culture? Why is that significant? Well, I think uh, through the history of having our faculty conferences here at Westminster Seminary, California, we've tried to address issues that are of importance and some lively interest uh, for the churches and for Christian people. And uh, we thought, uh, having covered a number of more theological topics in the past, and uh, last year having talked about a historical topic, John Calvin, uh, with his uh, 500th birthday coming up, that uh, this might be a good time to address a a broader sort of topic of great interest to Christians and to churches, namely, how does Christianity, how do individual Christians and how do churches uh, relate to the cultures in which they find themselves? David, what is culture? We use that word all the time. Uh, uh, Before uh, we began, we were talking about high culture and low culture, and we use the word, we talk about it as if everyone knows what we mean, but maybe we don't. Well, the fact is that probably none of us really know exactly what we mean by it, and uh, the word is certainly used in a uh, in looser ways and then in more uh, um, precise ways. I think it's probably most helpful to think of culture as uh, all the various products of uh, human uh, activity plus the way we talk about them and interpret them. That's a very broad definition, but I think when we're talking about culture, uh, we're, we're talking about uh, a, a great variety of things, uh, all the things that we do as uh, in our science, in our art, uh, in our economic activity, in our family lives, and uh, how we talk about these things and uh, uh, the uh, meanings that, that we give to these things. You mentioned some of the components of what might make a culture. When we say, for example, Christ and culture— or sometimes around here people say cult and culture. What do those expressions mean? Well, what we mean then is uh, basically getting at the uh, question, uh, what do we as individual Christians have to do with this broader world in which these activities of uh, uh, these economic and artistic and uh, scientific activities are, are, are taking place, uh, what difference does our Christian faith make for the relationship that we bear to these and, and the participation that we uh, have in these things? And not just for us as individual Christians, but for the church as a whole, uh, how does the church look at the economics and the politics and the science of this world, and uh, what sorts of things can and can't uh, the, uh, the church say about them? Why is this significant? I mean, can't you just go off into a monastery, Bob, and and get away from it? Well, probably some people I know should go to a monastery and get away from (laughs) us, but that's a whole different question. 
No. Uh, what what the whole monastic enterprise proved was that you can't really leave this world behind until uh, Christ calls us to heaven. Why that, not? Uh, well, in in the first place, because it's simply impossible. We take ourselves with us okay. wherever we go. We take with us the need to eat, the need to have shelter, the need to have clothing, the need to have relationships. And all of those things and the way we do them are part of what becomes the culture in which we we live. And uh, what the, the whole Christ and culture discussion really is all about is how does Christ relate to the culture's of this world in which we find ourselves, and how does he call us as Christians to relate to those cultures? So we distinguish, as you were saying earlier, between cult and culture, and by cult we mean the gathering to worship. Um, in in some ways, it's it's relatively easy to talk about what it means for Christians to gather to worship, although certainly in our day, that's also a very debated matter, how we ought to worship when we gather. But uh, much of our life is lived outside of the gathered worshiping community of the church. And the great question is, how are we supposed to live outside of that gathered worship community as Christians? So when people try to get away, and there have been lots of uh, attempts in the past to get away from the culture, uh, they end up taking it with them or when they gather together away from the broader culture, they end up creating a new or distinct culture, a culture of some kind. So culture is unavoidable. Absolutely. Uh, We are necessarily, as human beings, living in culture. And the the people who are perhaps at greatest risk are those who think they can escape their culture or um, fail to think deeply enough about what their culture really means. To keep going back to the monastic example— Uh, Historically, what you see is that monks left this world uh, and took vows of poverty so they would be detached from this world, but over generations often found themselves in monasteries that were incredibly wealthy. Uh, They took vows of chastity to get away from human relationships of this world and often found themselves caught up in in sexual immorality. So the effort to get away from this world is unsuccessful. We are to live in this world, and the great question is how would Christ have us live in this world? All right. So those seem like easy questions. Now I have one I think that's a little harder. In in Reformed circles, it's common to talk about transforming the culture, and, and in fact, not just in Reformed circles, in more broadly evangelical circles as well. What does it mean when people say, we need to transform the culture? Well, I think people mean different things by uh, uh, saying that. Uh, in a broad sense, again, I think uh, probably just about all Christians could agree that Christians should be active in this world and pursuing excellence— in this world, and and hoping by their deeds of of love and and service in this world, uh, to be having a good e- uh, e- effect upon the cultures of this world, and and so in some general sense, there is some transformative work that that all of us are are hoping to do. Uh, where the question gets a lot more difficult and a lot more controversial is when uh, people use the terminology of transformation uh, to be talking about the. Uh, redeeming of culture, uh, the uh, bringing of the kingdom of Christ uh, into the economics and the politics and uh, the science of this world. And then that raises really difficult questions. Is Christ's redemptive work supposed to be extending into the politics and the economics and the other uh, aspects um, 
of our culture, and and that's certainly one of the controversial uh, uh, topics that we'll be trying to a- address in this conference. Bob, in the nineteenth, late nineteenth century, and into the early twentieth century, there was a powerful movement in the Netherlands, led by a powerful figure, Abraham Kuyper. And some, at least, perhaps not all, but some of the language of transforming the culture is linked to him. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and the significance of Kuiper for modern you know, neo-Calvinism and, and uh, Reformed theology? Well, I think just as uh, David was saying that transformation is used in a variety of ways by different people, and I think if you begin to talk very long to people about culture, you find an awful lot of people have a variety of slogans they use, but once you get beyond two or three sentences of sloganeering, often they, they don't have a whole lot to say. Uh, but, but one who did try to think very carefully about the relationship of Christianity to culture was indeed Abraham Kuyper. And um, uh, Kuyper, who had a very profound impact in the Netherlands uh, from the late 19th century uh, on beyond his death in uh, 1920, 1921, through several decades of uh, the history of the 20th century, he was living in a world that is rather different from ours uh, in that he was living in a world uh, that was facing a rising tide of secularism in Europe. And most of the Christian alternatives being offered to that secularism were what we might call traditional medieval notions of how society ought to be Christian, that the state ought to ha- that the church ought to have a privileged position um, recognized by the by the state, and that that Christendom was the way to maintain a Christian influence in society. Uh, Kuyper was intriguing, I think, because he tried to break with the idea of Christendom. He didn't want to see a Christian society in the sense of uh, a society where non-Christian points of view were punished in law, uh, where the state used its coercive power to establish and enforce Christianity. Uh, He wanted a kind of free marketplace of ideas, uh, but he wanted Christian ideas to be part of that discussion, part of that free marketplace. And so he's trying to avoid, on the one hand, simply a a reassertion of the medieval idea of Christendom. And on the other hand, he's trying to resist the temptation of Christians just to withdraw from the public arena and from public discussions and do their private church life. And... um, in, in trying to formulate his ideas, he captured the imagination of a number of people and uh, somewhat belatedly perhaps has begun to capture the imagination of a number of people in North America in what are sometimes called neo-Kyperian ideas because sometimes these people go not only beyond Kuiper but in ways that I think actually would be contrary to Kuiper. That too is some of the, of the area we hope to cover in the conference. There are three questions that come out of your your remarks just there. One, you use the word secularism. What does that mean? It gets tossed around quite a bit. Well, secularism as a modern idea is an idea that stresses this world, the activities of this world, uh, largely independent from thinking about uh, eternal values or the life of a world to come. So the secularists, as they arise, the word is derived from a word meaning this age in Latin. And um, we usually use it to refer to people who uh, are not thinking much about God, who don't see the need for transcendent moral values based in a divine authority, but are just thinking about this world, this life, and uh, uh, often concerned only with uh, trying in their judgment to make this life better. This is So Van Till's sort of aut- autonomous man, man as a law unto himself. Right. And, 
right. and, uh, sh- and to some degree shaking his fist at God and trying to maybe even make utopia on this earth. Well, uh, you, you also spoke of Christendom. What does that mean? Well, throughout the whole ancient world, all civilizations saw the Western civilization saw themselves as resting on a religious foundation. Part of the reason early Christians were persecuted is that they were perceived both by Jewish authorities and by Roman authorities as undermining the religious foundations of the cultures that they were arising in. And um, when Christians became so large that they could no longer be persecuted out of existence, and in fact, when the Roman emperor himself became a Christian, uh, it's not surprising that the the Christian way of thinking about Christ and culture was to say, well, at last, we're the true religion. We've established ourselves as the true religion, and we should be the foundation of all society and, and all culture. So from the time of Constantine in the fourth century, uh, really down well into the 17th and 18th century, many, many Westerners believed that the only way you could have a unified culture was on the basis of a unified religious foundation, and that religious foundation was Christianity. So you have a, a grand experiment of close to 1,500 years of um, uh, Western society trying to function with Christianity as the foundation of its political, uh, judicial, moral life, and uh, that great experiment was, has been called by historians Christendom. Is there a move to get it back? I mean, you, you talk as if it's gone, and I get the sense that some people want to bring it back, that, that that's what we need. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking with Bob Godfrey and David Bindrunen about the upcoming faculty conference, Christ, Kingdom, and Culture, to be held here January 15th and 16th on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California. We hope you'll attend, but if you can't be here in person, you can download the conference audio from the bookstore at wscal.edu slash bookstore. This year, we've added a new way for you to attend the conference, even if you can't be here in person. You can watch the conference live on our video stream. That's right. We have a live video stream online of the conference on our website at wscal.edu slash conference 2010. This live broadcast will begin at 7 p.m. Pacific on Friday, January 15th. After the conference, videos of each plenary session will be available on our website. We hope to see you at the conference, but if you can't be here, be sure to watch the conference online and get the videos or download the MP3s. Okay, David, why are evangelicals who otherwise don't have much connection with Abraham Kuyper interested in his ideas? Why, why has he found such an, an avid reception? Well, I think part of, of the uh, reason for that is that as uh, evangelicals have found themselves in recent decades uh, much more involved in the public square and in uh, uh, politics and public policy questions, they've, they've realized that there aren't a whole lot of great evangelical thinkers to, uh, to look to to uh, give, give them some sort of inspiration or even credibility, perhaps. And uh, I think sometimes they, they look at Roman Catholics with their long tradition of, of social thinking and are, I, I think, a little bit jealous, perhaps, that evangelicals don't have something like that. And uh, there have been a number of uh, 
studies recently in which uh, Pope Leo XIII, who was a very important pope in in the late 19th century has been compared to Abraham Kuyper, who was his his contemporary. And so here is Kuyper, this sort of uh, grand figure. This is a fellow who was a theologian and a university founder and a political party leader and prime minister of the uh, of Holland. And uh, here's a figure who was large. Uh, here's larger, a, larger than life, he, really. I he, mean, yeah, yeah. He, publisher of two newspapers. I mean, a man that's of right. phenomenal industry. Yeah, that's right. And and. Um, Part of the problem, uh, I think, is is that he he wrote so much, and you know he he wrote in Dutch, and there's been some which has been translated, of course, but there's still a lot that's uh, inaccessible, and so I still think for most people, Kuiper is is very much a um, mystery. I mean, he's he, he's someone you can look to. He, you know, he was a Protestant figure uh, who was pretty profound thinker um, about these things. It sort of gives evangelicals something to. Uh, latch on to. But uh, I think there's still uh, a lot that's unknown, a lot that's uh, probably would be not necessarily all that appealing to people if they knew some of the things that Kuiper actually said. So if they knew the real Kuiper, they they might be perhaps somewhat more hesitant, you're, you're suggesting. Well, Kuiper was, uh, I mean, he was very much rooted in the uh, Reformed tradition. Uh, uh, he was a Reformed theologian, and uh, even though he used a lot of new terms for things, and uh, he said a lot of things in a distinctive way, and he, he certainly did have some distinctive ideas that he was really carrying on, I think, some some, some very old Reformed ideas. And um, I, I think it's a lot of those ideas that many people today are really not very aware of. So the evangelical appropriation of Kuiper had somewhat decontextualized him, perhaps. Well, I think I think that's true. Now, Bob, earlier, before the break, I suggested that um, some people want to bring back Christendom. Some years ago, you edited a volume on theonomy, which some people have connected with the desire to bring back Christendom. Can you talk about that project? What, what does it mean, and how should we think about people who, in various ways, want to bring back the uh, what's often called Christendom? Well, I think... Christendom has become, for some people, a kind of romantic ideal uh, that they uh, espouse without really fully understanding. I think the number of people who would actually, in America, like to bring back Christendom in the sense of having one denomination established as the true church and supported by uh, the government with the um, at least historic Christendom's attitude that the government must not only support the one true church but must actively seek to suppress all the many false churches. I don't think even if one could have any confidence that one's own church would be made the true church, I don't think there are very very many people, Christians in America, who want to see all other churches and all other religions suppressed by the authority of the government. I don't think we want to see policemen going around and shutting down churches and arresting ministers who don't preach what the government thinks they ought to preach. So this this ideal still has an attraction. We hear lots of people who want a Christian America. But there again, if you press them as to exactly what that means, there there's a kind of vague response. And I think that's, again, part of why Kuiper becomes an ideal for people who do want to dig a little more deeply into this, because uh, Kuiper, amongst other things, was a success. And of course, Americans love success. They don't want to follow a loser. And, and Kuiper was that rather unique figure in human history who was both a genuine intellectual with 
really very creative thinking and at the same time an orator who could move the masses by his speaking and by his writing and did become prime minister. So uh, Kuyper appeals to the American imagination on, on, on that score as well. But Dave is absolutely right. Kuyper saw himself as articulating a vision that was profoundly and distinctively reformed. And uh, he, Kuyper would not have been able to imagine that his vision could could succeed or really take root amongst people who weren't equally reformed. Is it the case that uh, some of those who advocate a return to Christendom are really proposing the return of a kind of – or maybe the adoption of a kind of Christianity that would lack uh, distinctive – views that, for example, we would confess in the, in the Reformed Confessions. And the reason I ask this is that recently, as we're sitting here talking, uh, the Manhattan Declaration uh, was published on the web and, and I suppose elsewhere. And there you see a gathering of at least uh, three different or maybe more different Christian traditions gathering together to uh, express concern about social developments and to make certain social affirmations. And then as part of that uh, those uh, that process and and as part of those affirmations, there's also language about the gospel. It, is that some reflection of of a desire to to get back to Christendom? Well, I think that's probably true, and I think what we see there, which is what we see in um, a lot of other similar developments, is that uh, the return to a Christian America means the return to a more moral kind of America that. Uh, in the midst of these culture wars, in the midst of debates about abortion or gay marriage and uh, things like that, which are which are obviously very important uh, social and political uh, topics, there's this sense of of recapturing a Christian America means getting rid of suppressing these sorts of uh, practices. And if you if you leave things at that general social moral level, uh, sure, you know you can get lots of conservative Protestants and conservative Catholics together to agree that abortion is not right and that marriage is between a man uh, and a woman. But it, it would seem that if we are to recapture a Christian America, it needs certainly some sort of doctrinal content as well. Uh, and I think Bob's comments there are uh, very fitting. I mean, do we really want to do that? Do we really think that we could ever attain that sort of thing? Recently in Switzerland, and you, you may be aware of this from the news, minarets were banned by a national referendum which is a remarkable thing. Bob, you and I were in Switzerland this summer, and uh, it's not a particularly devout nation. At least it didn't strike uh, me as such, and I don't think anyone thinks that it is. Probably hasn't been since Rousseau. What does that mean for a nation to hold a referendum and to vote to ban expressions of uh, religious devotion? Well, it means a couple of things, I think. First of all, in Switzerland, as in many parts of Europe, there still are remnants of Christendom. Uh, in parts of Switzerland, the Reformed Church is still the state church. In parts of Switzerland, the Roman Catholic Church is still the state church. So uh, there is a certain sense in which Christianity still has a somewhat favored position in uh, hmm. in various European countries, including in Switzerland, however secular most of the people are. What the vote about minarets expresses, I think, is this vague sort of fear that Europeans are increasingly having and that many Christians in America have, that that things are changing and we don't like the way they're changing and we're not really sure why this is being foisted on us and we're upset about it. And the, the, part of the reason we're trying to have this 
conferences because a lot of the Christian distress, I think, in this country, while legitimate, is rather unfocused and rather uncertain about what it really wants to do. It has certain clear goals, uh, such as trying to outlaw abortion, trying to uh, uh, prevent gay marriage. But beyond that, uh, it doesn't seem to have much of a program, much of a vision, other than the fact that we don't like it. And as, as long as Christians just say, well, we don't want this because we don't like it, without being able to articulate a vision for what, society, what we do want society to look, at, look like. For example, we, by and large, have not, as Christians, tried to outlaw sin generally. Uh, it's curious to me that the churches have not mounted a huge protest against divorce, which is much more of a threat to the family than gay marriage. Why do you say that? I mean, that might not be obvious to everyone. Can you explain yourself? Well, because there are a lot more heterosexual people in this country than there are homosexual people. And where heterosexuals are constantly getting divorces, and the divorce rate is huge in the United States, and it's huge in the churches, families are constantly being ripped apart. Mm. Uh, here is a, is a massive threat to the family. Um, but where, where are the Christian voices showing great concern about that? It's always, it's always easier to be vehemently against sins to which one is not tempted than it is to oppose sin that one actually may be tempted to oneself. And, and again, we have to think about the social consequences of uh, what we think about sin and, and how sin is rightly to be opposed. Is this if I could just add something to, to that, uh, as I understand what, what happened in uh, Switzerland, uh, the uh, building of mosques was not prevented in any way. It's just the uh, minarets, hmm. which, which seems to indicate that this is this is symbolic rather than substantive which i think is 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 in part what bob is saying that you know when you're focused on on symbols this also has to do with the call to prayer right i mean in the minaret you have the mosaic and and you have this fairly prominent call to prayer which is well yeah i think the whole function of the minaret is to call the people to prayer wherever the the sound of the call can be heard and uh, in this sense it's uh, not an intrinsic part of the practice of the Muslim religion, but it's a, a testimony to the Muslim religion coming to dominate uh, a whole area. And uh, it, it's interesting that when the Muslims took over Christian areas uh, in uh, Eastern Europe and in the Near East uh, originally, uh, one of the things they did was to uh, outlaw the ringing of bells in church towers mm. because bells also were a public call uh, to prayer. And um, and there's been some of that in this country, right? Some controversy over you know whether church bells can ring and when they can ring, right. and how loud right. they can be. Right. Uh, we're talking about the upcoming faculty conference, Christ, Kingdom, and Culture, and it will be held on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California, next month, January 15th and 16th. For more information about the conference, go to wscal.edu and click on the conference banner. Or call us at 760-480-8474 for more information. All right, one last question, and that is about the the part of the title of the conference that says Christ, Kingdom, and Culture. We've focused on Christ and culture, but we haven't talked as much about kingdom, even though we've talked about Christendom. Why did we use the word kingdom in the title, and and what do we mean quickly when we say kingdom? Well, I— I think the first thing that ought to be said is that all of these questions are very complicated, and uh, we're, we're going to try at the conference to analyze as fully as we can 
in a relatively short conference what all of these things mean and how Christians need to try to think them through. Christ's kingdom obviously refers to the way in which Christ is ruling now in this world and how Christians want to try to express that reign of Christ now in the world, as well as to think about the present reign of Christ in relation to the fullness of his kingdom that will come only in glory. And so that desire to live out the reign of Christ as faithfully as we can means that Christians are going to try to carry their understanding of Christ's kingdom in relation to culture as faithfully as they can. And one of the great debates amongst Christians today is how do we do that? What does that mean? And it is, I hope as this discussion has already illustrated, a complicated question. It's not one that uh, you can solve with a bumper sticker. Is it the case, David, finally, that everyone agrees with the definition of kingdom that uh, Bob just gave? Well, I think if we keep the uh, the discussion at a very general level, we can say, sure, the, uh, the kingdom is about Christ's rule. But once we descend into details again, as Bob was saying, it's a complicated issue. We raise questions about this uh, – Reformation idea of the two kingdoms of of God. They are they're both God's kingdom. The two kingdoms idea gets at this concept that uh, that God uh, in Christ rules the whole world. He rules all things, and yet he he rules the whole world in two different distinct ways. Uh, and 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 that that has something to do with the way we understand uh, the church now, uh, the way we understand uh, the state, and the way we understand uh, the various other. Uh, activities of uh, culture, and that's certainly one of the things that we're going to be uh, exploring uh, in this conference that's upcoming. When you say, quickly now, uh, two kingdoms, you're not suggesting that there's, and I think I heard you, you're, you're not saying that there's an area over which God is sovereign, and then there's a sort of neutral, undefined area over which he's not sovereign. Absolutely not, no. Uh, that's a uh, caricature uh, that, that some people use to uh, slander the idea of the two kingdoms, but that's certainly not what the Reformation meant. That's certainly not what Reformed theologians meant for hundreds of years as they used uh, this idea. God is is in control of all things. He, he rules all things in his Son. There is no area of life that is morally neutral, that's morally uh, autonomous, and that's certainly something that uh, we, we want to stress. Uh, but just because God is ruling all things and that all things are morally accountable to him— does not mean that he rules all areas of life in exactly the same way. And I which, think- is a, which, interestingly enough, is exactly a point that Abraham Kuyper wanted to make. So one of the things we'll be exploring at this conference is, to what a huge extent, the two kingdoms' point of view and the Kuyperian point of view, as articulated by Abraham Kuyper, really um, often are saying the same thing. Well, that's a great place to stop, and we look forward to seeing you at the conference. We uh, hope that you're here. And if you're not able to be here, remember you can watch the conference live streaming online at the Westminster Seminary California website, wscal.edu slash conference 2010. You can also download MP3 audio of the conference from the bookstore at wscal.edu slash bookstore. That's it for this edition of Office Hours. We've been talking about the upcoming faculty conference, Christ, Kingdom, and Culture, to be held next month, January 15 and 16, on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about the conference, go to wscal.edu and click on the conference banner, or call us at 760-480-8474. 
Thanks to our producer, Robert Rizzio, to Katie Wagonmaker in the bookstore, to Young Me for graphics, and to Adam Klaus for technical assistance. We'll be back next time for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash officehours or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu slash officehours. We want to hear from you. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. For more information about this program or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.